why we're all doing that. Hello and welcome to this episode of the ESG Fitness Podcast. I feel like there's a massive echo on that. There was there. I think it's you, Andy. <laughs> Andy. Was that better? Maybe, yeah. Okay, I think we're okay. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. It's a Q&A episode. I am joined by Andy and Shona. Hello, both. How are you? Fabulous. Um, can I just say something, like, quickly? It's just been on my mind this morning. So, um, you see your, your post on ice baths? <laughs> yeah. I've been really enjoying the comments. And it just kind of um, struck me... I know quite a few people that are really into ice baths and one of my really good friends is actually a Wim Hof instructor and those people that are really into it tend to have gotten into it because um, they really enjoyed the mental health benefits of it and then what kind of happens is there's like this cognitive dissonance thing where they then look at all the other benefits that there's not necessarily science to prove that there are benefits there and they get so upset when someone says, look, actually, here's the here's a fact. And they get they take it so personally. And it's it's the same with CrossFit, it's the same with veganism, it's the same with yoga. Like there are benefits, but there's also lots of things that aren't so great about it. And I just thought it was so interesting. There was people there that were actually attacking you and being like like they were taking it so personally. Like someone was like, all right, love. Did, did you see that girl comment call you love? I was like, what? How That's dare? worse than hun. But yeah, it's some of them, like the thing is that arguments are ridiculous because I've not said anything about the psychological benefits. Like if you want to do it for those reasons and you feel like you get a benefit. And also not once did I tell anyone not to do anything. Mm-hmm. My whole point of the whole thing, which was ironic given like the man that commented being like, um, who should I believe? Some Instagram model hello I'm now a model thank you (laughs) or like with a study or by the way it's not just one study I just use one study because it's bloody Instagram I don't have time to review all of the literature but there are numerous studies showing the same thing um or elite level athletes and I'm like the whole point of this post was that people get results despite what they do not because of what they do like you could quite easily be like well, if it's good enough for Mo Farah, who's, you know, arguably one of the best marathon runners in the world, then I'm sure it can't be that bad. Right, but is he one of the best marathon runners in the world despite the fact he does ice baths? Not because of the fact he does ice baths. And I think that's, that's like, the crux of it, really. But, yeah, I did not realise that people were so passionate about ice baths (laughs) until today. I was like... Oh, they re- like really really passionate and it's interesting because I actually put that up because last night I was like oh I've not put anything up like particularly useful in a while I felt like a couple of days or, just or been controversial like... <laughs> it wasn't it no but this is that my point was I didn't think it would be controversial and actually it's not I I mean this has been it's known not. for over 10 years like it's yeah. not it's not new that study's 2015 mm-hmm it's just, yeah, it is interesting that people are so, like, it's almost like I directly attacked them. It is, isn't it? And you didn't. You totally didn't. You just said, look, it's not great if your goal is building muscle. Yeah. And they're like, but there's so many other benefits. And I'm like, I didn't say there wasn't so many uh-huh. other benefits. Yeah. But equally, 
there isn't really any evidence behind it. And this is another point I want to make, especially about like a lot of people have asked me about Wim Hof recently, and I am going to go and do some research on it and come back with a, with my views on it. But just before we, we like even think about that, like there isn't research on it. That doesn't mean it doesn't work or that it does work. It means we, we don't yet know. But also just because there isn't research backing something like, yeah, you can't claim it's quote unquote evidence based, which everybody loves, obviously. But it also doesn't mean it's not worth doing. And a lot of the time research is catching up with what people do. So people might be like, I'm getting huge benefits from doing this thing. The prime example of this is I'm getting huge benefits from HIIT training. No one really knew why. Like we didn't know like on a molecular level what the real benefits of HIIT training were. And like, why is there this huge benefit to health? Like why are people seeing great results? Why is there this actually almost equal VO2 max increase that you would see with traditional endurance training? Like why are we seeing those things? That's where the research comes in to find out why. And and sometimes the training method or Wim Hof or whatever it is, slow breathing, ice, uh, cold bath exposure, whatever, comes before the research comes. But in this instance, they then did do the research and they found that it wasn't just un, like it wasn't just that it didn't benefit. There was actually a cost to that. So with any of these things, you've got to think, okay, maybe you find there's a psychological benefit, but there's also a cost that comes with that benefit. And that cost is reduced anabolic signaling. So if your goal is improved strength, I wouldn't have an ice bath. Unless you think that the benefit you're getting psychologically outweighs that negative effect. And that is your personal choice and I'm not making it for you. So please stop hating me. Thanks. <laughs> is it like someone commented saying, uh, likening it to putting chicken in the freezer and that nothing happens to the chicken. Um, is it kind of that sort of same thing? No. <laughs> no like I, I saw that someone had written that and I was like, oh, that's an interesting concept, but I don't... Well, you can't really compare... No, a piece of dead chicken breast <laughs> to a human but some of the comments were interesting like the woman i think it was the woman that called me love or whatever mm-hmm. was uh trying to claim the increased blood flow was beneficial and it is for many reasons but do you know what the best form like the best way to increase blood flow is exercise mm-hmm. so it's like yeah and, and a lot of these things i noticed this with a lot of things like saunas like um ice baths other other things as well but a lot of them are exercise mimetics i.e they mimic some of the benefits you would get from exercise so for example saunas have been shown to increase vasodilation um, increase vascular health in many ways and thus they might be good for type 2 diabetics and there's evidence for that and they actually increase insulin sensitivity great what does that more effectively exercise yeah like it's just like finding a way around like would you get a much more potent effect from actually just going for a walk yeah you would but you know what get a sauna installed in your house because that's the easier option for you (laughs) do you know what personal training is too expensive i think i'm just gonna get a sauna yeah (laughs) good plan okay well before we get on with the questions because i know andy still has quite a lot from commit to six um I had just such a good committed check-in today that I wanted to share some of it. So proudest moment of the week was realizing my happiness is not linked to my body size, e.g. 
I wasn't happier because I was in shape, but I tend to be in shape when I'm happier. And I think that that is like such an important realization because I think sometimes we'll look back on, I don't know, photos of ourselves in a bikini on holiday and be like, I was so happy when I had abs and I looked like that. And it's like, sometimes actually you're happy when you're in shape. I mean, in that instance, you were on holiday and all these other factors, but there are life factors. But then also sometimes it's because if you're someone who struggles with emotional eating, like the reason you were in shape is because you were happy and you weren't emotionally eating, not because you were in shape and thus you were happy. Like they're, they're different. And I think realizing that is so important. So I loved that realization. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also loved just the positivity of this. So I was like, what are you most grateful for this week? And she wrote lockdown. And she was like, I know this sounds really weird, but I've always wished for a year where I could take a sort of sidestep from life. And I think that's so interesting as well, because it's like, one, obviously you're finding positives in a negative situation, which I am obviously all about, but it's also just massively interesting. Like this is an opportunity we would have never had. Mm. like being in lockdown like you would we would never probably have this opportunity again that you're like taking a bit of time off and things are a little bit different and you can see that as a negative or you can try and find positives in it but it is also just like even thinking back to last year before this you'd be like it would never happen that I have the opportunity to work from home for a year or like that everything would be shut and I can focus on things that I've potentially been putting off like whether that is you know, really working on your mental health or really working on your physical health or starting a new hobby or starting a new job or anything really, that you would never have this opportunity. And I think that is such a cool way to think about it. So I loved that as well. Uh, I think there was another part. Oh, no, wait, that that was it. That was it. But I loved that check-in. I think so far I've done four check-ins. <laughs> that was my favorite of the four. So well done, well done. <laughs> No, I love it. I love, um, I think the general vibe right now of the whole Commit to Six group, Commit to Six and Committed, is that everyone's really positive. It's almost like everyone's like pulling each other up and it's all rubbing off eating each other. And it, it's brilliant. I love it. It's positivity positive. is contagious, just the same yeah. as negativity is. So I think it's so nice that people can share stuff. And that's not to say that there's this like fake positivity within the group. Like there are negatives that happen. Mm. There are people that slip up, there are people that are feeling demotivated, but there's always this like underlying want to improve and to be positive and I freaking love it. Love it. Okay, Andy. Do you have any questions? Hundreds. Whoa. Um, okay. No, number one, uh, protein intake and sugar intake and impact on migraines. Um, migraines came up on the EC Method podcast, actually, not like the last one that's up. So if you want to go and have a listen to the end of that, we spoke quite a lot about migraines and like my own experience of them. To do you, do either of you struggle with migraines? No. No. Okay, I'm gonna Never. take this question then because I find it really interesting because I massively struggle with migraines, or I have done in the past, less so now. And for me. I tried to find a trigger for ages and I couldn't work it out because sometimes it was caffeine, but obviously at other times of the month I could, well, at other times I could drink caffeine and not get migraine. And then I realized it was the combination of caffeine and 
being premenstrual so like the week before my cycle would be when I would usually have one um so I think finding out what the trigger is for you but honestly that's quite hard because it can literally be anything like I've never heard of it being protein like in general um I do think sugar for some people but it wouldn't be like any sugar at any time it's often like maybe something really high in sugar pre like the week before your cycle because a lot of them are hormonal or linked to hormonal things which makes a lot of sense in terms of your vasodilation vasoconstriction again for me like other things link like that I have really bad Reynolds because migraines are caused by vasoconstriction again Reynolds vasoconstriction so my vascular function is a bit odd um but figuring out what it is and like generally I would go and see your GP to do this but the, the thing they're going to do is ask you to keep a diary same with things like IBS like you need to figure out what your trigger is it's easier said than done I think especially with migraines is they often tend to almost change a little bit as well like throughout life like mine was very clearly always the week before my cycle but then I don't know if it's as simple anymore and I went on the pill for many years, which completely, I didn't get migraine at all when I was on the pill. So there are many sort of nuances that I would, I don't think it would be like the broad sweep of sugar or protein. Like that isn't going to be your trigger. It's going to be some people it's chocolate, but it's often chocolate at a certain time of month or something. So I would keep a food diary. Perfect. Good. Um, have you got any, Shona, or do you want me just to keep rattling through these ones? No, no, you go. You go. I'm, sure. I'm just reading mine, um, check, check if I do, but I think I'll be fine. So, quite a long one. Um, now, I've achieved, now I've achieved the weight loss goal. I feel building muscle is going to take forever, which I'm fine with, but unlike weight loss, because you can't see a weekly change, how can you stay motivated knowing that you're getting nearer to that goal as you can't see the change or monitor this? How do you even know you're doing the workouts right and not wasting your time? I find it very hard not having someone to push me like you do in a gym. Uh, I'll just give up when it gets hard. And I think it's because I don't even know if I will build muscle or if my body is even capable of building muscle. Start at the back end of that one. Your body is capable of building muscle. Simple as. Um, I think this is just a mindset change up that you need. Um, I think you need to start thinking about things like progress markers rather than how it looks in the mirror, things like strength. Um, if you're doing more reps, if you're lifting more, um, even at home, you know, we can still change up your um, the stimulus of the, the your weights that you're doing. So whether it be progressing on how much you're lifting or how many reps you're hitting. Um, and also start thinking a bit more positively about it. Like I am here to enjoy training, you know what? And the fact about you worrying about if you're doing workouts right and wasting your time, you're getting to train. That's not wasting time. That's, that's, that's a good place to be. Oh my God. I read such a cool study the yesterday. I think it was like, I can't remember if it was the Harvard health study that like followed people for a long period of time, or if it was this Dallas health study, but anyway, they did some maths and equated, the benefit in terms of increased longevity of life compared to hours you spent exercising and they equated one hour of exercise I think and it was up to four times a week because we know there's a, a law of diminishing returns here but one hour of exercise equates to two extra hours of your life so you are literally making time how cool is that fact 
Wait, it, sorry. Say so that you again? do one hour of exercise uh-huh. equates to two extra hours on your life. That's amazing. So you're not never wasting time exercising no. because you are literally you'll get it back more time. You'll get it back. It's like it's like, a, it's like a savings account for your life. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, love it. And also, it's not just like length of life; it's quality of life as well. Um, yeah. What I would say about this is, it sounds quite naggy, um, and I would try and put a positive spin on this. Like the other thing is, you need to enjoy the process. What, don't worry so much about the outcome all the time and stress that you can't exactly measure the outcome. We know that if you hit your non-negotiables for increasing muscle mass, you will increase muscle mass. Like you're eating enough protein, you're eating enough calories, you're sleeping enough, you're resistance training, whether that's at home or in the gym. Remember your body weight is resistance as well. And as a woman, it's actually kind of lucky because most of us, our body weight is kind of heavy enough to create actually quite a lot of stimulus on a muscle. You can absolutely do that at home. You will absolutely build muscle if you tick all of those boxes consistently over time. Is building muscle slow? Yes. Can you see results week on week? No. But this is why we give you things to tick off. So your result isn't X on the scale. Even for fat loss, this is the same like a successful week on commit to six no matter what your goal is hitting your non-negotiables that's a successful week doesn't matter if the scales have gone up up or down because we know they aren't realistic like they aren't um, an accurate measure and yes we use some of these things to guide us but your definition of a successful week is ticking these boxes that's your outcome measure so if you know that like yes i've hit all my protein servings this week and I've trained four times and I've rested really well, then yeah, you will be building muscle. And realistically, you probably won't see that week on week. And the more um, experienced you get, the harder it will be to see these changes. So like when you're first starting to build muscle, you might see strength increases quite quickly, which will correlate after a given newbie period to improved um, hypertrophy. But after a while, like, I'm sure Andy doesn't see strength in- increases week on week because you've been lifting for a long time. Like, you might, like, once you become quite an experienced lifter, it's very likely that you'll spend, like, a whole, I don't know, 12-week strength cycle block adding 2.5 kilograms to your squat. Yep, very much so. When you get to that elite level, it takes a lot. Um, I also think that like, yeah, it would be so much nicer if like me and Andy and Emma could like come round to your house and like physically train you. And yeah, like some people might be really used to having that one-to-one personal trainer, but that's just like not possible right now. Like no one can really have that. Um, and I think this is a good time for you to train yourself because like you need to learn how to be able to motivate yourself to do this yourself. You need to learn how to exercise at home. Like you're, you're not gonna always have someone who can like tell you to do it. So now is a good time to learn. Do you know um, what I'm finding? What I'm thinking of right now is that meme that Andy put in the group of the dog walking itself. <laughs> Parent your damn self. Um, I'm, I'm actually excited about Andy taking like a body pump class at the end of Commit to Six um, live in the Facebook group. 
I don't have light enough weights to do body pump. Oh! Oh! I used to teach body pump and there was this guy in his 60s who would come and he would put 45 kilos on his bar for every single movement. There's no progression there, is there? <laughs> <laughs> Week on week, 45 oh. kilos for years. Make a difference, mate. Come on, just get out. <laughs> uh, next one up. Will a good sleep schedule help? Quite simply, yes. <laughs> I was wondering what you were going to say there. <laughs> Sleep schedule. <laughs> Sleep schedule. Uh, yes. Yeah, well. Um, Massively. Like, you can't yeah. underestimate the impact that will have on literally everything. Like, you can go into the nuances of oh, insulin sensitivity and like the impact on grain muscle and recovery and all these things. But even just generally, like, will you be happier, healthier? more engaged, have more energy, feel better generally, find it easier to stick to your diet, like all of these things. Things are so much harder when you're tired. So they're much easier when you're not. Good answer. Within the six week plan, when do you normally start to see results? How long is a piece of string? (laughs) Yeah, it depends a what results. Do you know what? In some respects, at day one. Yeah, like you could be already a... like feeling like you've got more energy. Like you've you've just been looking after yourself. Your mindset, you're more positive from yeah, day it's one. Yeah, that yes. positivity, and it, and it's also like starting something's really freaking hard, and to have committed to something, to have paid and invested in yourself you'll probably already feel better right at the start. Like, yeah, I know that I want to change. Okay, now I now I have a plan to change. I've got the support system to do it. You'll probably start feeling better immediately. And actually, when you take a step back, that's, that's your primary outcome. You only want to weigh a certain weight because you think you'll feel better then. You only want to lose body fat so that you can feel better. You only want to build muscle so that you feel better. Like, that's always the outcome at, at the end. So yeah you'll start seeing results straight away in terms of oh when will i see results on the scales completely depends on where you're starting like you will get people that drop five pounds within three or four days because they've started from quite a high body fat and maybe quite a salty diet with a lot of carbs in and they've cut some of that but we'll also have people who don't see any change in the scale weight for two weeks for three weeks maybe potentially because they started at a certain part of their cycle or because they're already quite lean they don't have much weight to lose this is still assuming that fat loss is the goal we'll have people that start in hypertrophy phase and like like we're just talking about how are you measuring the result there and we'll have people who start with like neither goal but just want to get into good habit and routine so i think it's quite hard like it's almost impossible to say when will you start seeing results because it depends what your outcome measure is yeah i think the, the the next two questions are covered by that as well so that's quite good i've got one Andy, for me and you i've just go one. um okay i'm about to get a puppy woohoo and i know you and andy both have dogs obviously in the long run this will be great as i can get even more steps in and have a running buddy but in the short term i'm worried about how i'll still manage to get in my early morning workouts 
if pup wakes up when I come downstairs to work out at 5.45, then what can I do? Presumably, I'll have to let the pup out for a wee and then spend time cuddling and playing with it before it gets... This is like dog ownership questions rather than anything else. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't work out at lunch times because I have a toddler and the nurseries are shut. I can't work out in the evenings as my hubby does his workouts then. Uh, I was going to have a deload week when the pup arrives so that I'm not putting us under any pressure. Pup and toddler come first. But equally, I'm making some good progress on workouts and strength. I could see myself sacrificing the first week till pup is more settled. FYI, it will take longer than a week. Um, but what's realistic? <laughs> yeah, <there>? very optimistic. <laughs> yeah, very optimistic. Sorry, I know you aren't a puppy training camp, but I just wanted to ask. <laughs> Funny you should mention that, talking about the fact that we've been doing other things on... Um, during time lockdown that's my next one on my list is to become a dog trainer no way that's so good i thought you were gonna say you were getting a puppy i thought you were well that's that's on the cards as well (laughs) but um no um i think that the thing with um well certainly i don't know what you were like showing about with with akira we crate trained her so she was crate trained the reason that i think a lot of people get sort of mis misconstrue a crate and a cage it's not a cage the crate is for the dogs it's a sanctity it's where it can get away from people when they're annoying it from kids when they're pulling its tail it's the dogs it's like you're it's like the gym for us we get away to to switch off that's what the dog does with its crate so crate train the dog that's probably my biggest the number one thing I can get to people is crate train the dog. The dog uses that as its bed and that's where it will stay. And if you put the crate in where you're training and or put like a little puppy um, pen where you're training, if the puppy can see you, the puppy will be fine. You can train around the puppy quite easily. That'll be quite a simple one to do. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of um, Jenny who takes part in my yoga classes. She got a puppy and the puppy was just like jumping on her the entire time she was in the yoga class but she still persevered she still persevered um when I got Maggie as a puppy I lived in a fifth floor flat so it was an absolute nightmare um and essentially for the first two weeks you can't leave because they're not allowed outside until they've had their injections um so I did essentially just have to take a couple of weeks of exercise um but you know what it's uh, you just have to think of like the longer term like you've got a running buddy you've got an excuse to get more steps in um, and it also will motivate you to get that crate training down as quickly as possible. Definitely. Yeah. That is such an interesting question, though. Thank you. We haven't had that so, one before. No. <laughs> no that, that, isn't, that is definitely a new one. Um, I've got one in here. Whenever I do an ab exercise, I don't feel it in my abs, but instead in my middle back. Uh, is this because I'm not doing the exercise properly or because I'm not engaging my abs? Um, I briefly read something online about a correlation between tight hips. Uh, my hips are always sore and pop all the time. Is there a way to improve technique as I feel like I'm not getting what I should out of the exercises? It's kind of hard like, without being able to see what you're doing. So if this person could maybe like send one of us a video, um, but it is really common for people to, to not feel ab exercises in their abs and feel it in their back or their middle back and it probably is just because you're not maybe doing the exercise properly um and maybe you need to look at like some swaps do you does, andy do you know what exercises it is they're trying to do 
Um, crunches, bicycles, and V-ups. Okay, so my immediate thought is that with like those things that you're not like actually crunching and you're lifting your back off the floor, so like yep. you're arching your back and maybe you are using your hips so like you're bending at the hips rather than like crunching, um, like flexing your spine. Um, but again, it's quite hard to to, to see without without seeing. Yeah, the thing um, I think that sounds perfectly. It's the kind of thing that I was probably doing for years before seeing a physio after my um, hip started to collapse inwards. Um, So more pelvic floor work was, I needed to do more pelvic floor work to be able to start getting my abs to engage. Um, And since doing that, like I, I, probably my abs are the strongest they've been since I've been able to start or started training smarter around that stuff so yeah pop a video up um i think karen um somebody put a video up this morning of their penley row um for me to have a look at so quite happy we're all we're all pretty happy just jumping on if you if you have a question about an exercise just chuck a video up if you want us to look at your technique and we can critique it i absolutely love how much you talk about pelvic floor I just think that um, it's something that male coaches just don't talk about enough. It's, and it is. I love t- it. Let's give Shona some credit because I think it's Shona's influence, isn't it? <laughs> no, 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 not yours. Not uh-huh. yours. Other Shona. Oh, other Shona. Oh, really? yeah. yeah, she's Shona mega been... on the pelvic floor. Oh, amazing. Mega on pelvic. Yeah, mega on pelvic floor. Um... <laughs> so much so. Have you seen the little thing that you can get? That's like. <laughs> It's like Super Mario for your vagina. Super you Mario? That... Yeah, so like you put something inside yourself and then you've got to squeeze on it. So it's all about controlling your pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. And you can actually do, you can, it monitors it and fires it onto your phone, onto an app to see how much, how strong your pelvic floor is. Very and does Shona just give this to different clients? Or is like, this a personal one? Like, <laughs> just chuck this just, up. Just, uh, like that. Just sterilise it and give it back in a week. <laughs> no, I think um, I think she probably says that you, you should go and buy one for yourself. Fair yeah, enough. I think like that um, any male or female coach that is training someone and making them lift heavy should be talking about pelvic floor and like yeah. the importance of it. So, yeah, love it, Andy, love it. Quite an interesting one that actually, again, Shona had mentioned that she actually thinks that our generation, or the generation that she's in, which will be the same generation as you guys, will probably see more females with more pelvic floor problems than um, with stuff like incontinence later on in life. Because when you're lifting weights, your pelvic floor presses away from where it should be. So thus loosening it rather than tightening it. So actually females who weight train should be focusing on stuff like pelvic floor to help strengthen it and keep it keep mm-hmm. it tight and in place um but yeah i've noticed a big difference since starting doing well, stuff for myself she's um, actually going to come on the podcast and talk about this it was going to be this week but i can't fit it in so many podcasts you need to give subtitles for translation though because she's from deepest darkest dumfries nobody can that understand bad. she's you know what? she's not i would say that this shona has um a stronger accent no, I don't. don't no, I don't. No, I don't. Oh, Denny. <laughs> How fucking dare you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Cool. Um, um, I have a question. Sure. 
when finishing i was gonna do a scottish accent there but why am i not bringing it then no i'm not gonna do it okay when finishing a fat loss phase what are the positives and negatives of going back to maintenance straight away versus slowly this is such a common question yeah i actually just everyone's asking this on my story so it's quite fresh but basically the the benefit is psychological like almost 100 percent psychological ideally we'd bring you straight up to maintenance the benefit of doing that a bit slower is that some people have this really big fear of putting on fat once they've lost fat and i completely understand and resonate because if you've worked really really hard to lose fat then you're quite reluctant to put that back on if you just want to maintain where you are you're obviously in a deficit at the moment if fat loss has been what's happening. We need to bring those calories up to maintenance. But people get quite scared of doing that. And part of it is because inevitably the scale will go up because of food volume, because of glycogen stores in your muscle. That doesn't mean that you've added any fat, but there's that kind of fear around that, which is why I normally do it quite slowly with people. However, if I've got someone who like genuinely has no hang up with the scale, they're quite happy just to move up to estimated maintenance straight away, then that's always my preferred option. Because otherwise you are still in a deficit. You're just in a slightly less of a deficit. Like you're prolonging the diet. And if you've reached the end of your diet, we want to get you back up to maintenance level because we don't want you to lose any more body fat. But the benefit is purely psychological. And I know that people are like, oh, you might have metabolic damage and you need to reverse diet to blah, blah, blah. And they're just trying to sell you some shitty program that, oh, you might damage your metabolism if you move it straight back up. Bullshit. Bullshit. Okay. Uh, You go. I've got another one after. Um, is there a link between having too much protein and kidney stones? Not that I am aware of, no. I think, well, there are I, there are links between these things, but it's like pre-existing kidney damage. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that if, if a, you're, like, that, healthy. Yeah. That, is that not where they got the, remember the original study that they claimed that protein was bad for your kidneys and it was done on people who had kidney pre-existing failure. kidney problems? Yeah. Of course it was fucking problematic for your kidneys. No, your so kidneys the, aren't working. There is a little bit more nuance to this and I actually had a really good discussion with Emil who is a friend of mine and is a doctor and he had sent me this study and he was like, have you seen this? I've not seen it being debunked yet. Sorry. Uh-huh. How rude. <laughs> anyway, he he sent me this study and it hadn't he like hadn't seen like the other side of it yet, and it was quite interesting. It was showing that there was some kidney damage with increased uh, or quote unquote high levels of protein. And what was quite alarming is that the high levels of protein were 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight. So actually, for the fitness world, still quite moderate to low levels of protein. Um. But I, and I didn't really know how to debunk it either because I wasn't aware of the methodology they've used, like all the methods they've used to measure the, like how well your kidneys are functioning. And so I asked um, Professor Tipton, who is like a leading researcher in, in protein metabolism. And he was like, oh, this is like a prime example of using the wrong method to look at something like an outcome and not having any context to it. And basically he was like, yeah, they're not looking at 
like basically your kidney is being used more in fact this is what he said he said um the conclusion could be used in a classroom to teach about overstating results and Stu phillips said i'll fix their con conclusion for you a high protein diet asserted from a single ffq figure which i think is their their problem that it's just this one single figure is associated with increased risk of renal function decline in koreans um and then he said it's an observational association using a single ffq so low quality evidence no agreement with actual intervention data so again it's it's kind of like i used this quote today which i really like that yeah you see in fact this isn't even good association data but you see uh when it's raining you always see umbrellas but it doesn't mean that umbrellas cause rain like although they've noticed these two things and they seem to be linked one the methodology wasn't good two we actually have randomized control trials with much more um control and uh ability to measure these things proving that that isn't the case and yeah i don't have a third point so i just stop it <laughs> So yeah, don't worry about it, basically. Unless you have underlying kidney problems, in which case you need to go and see a doctor, not us, then don't worry about it. Cool. Did you say you had one or want oh, yeah, one from here? Oh yeah, I do. Okay, this is quite a long one. <clears throat> so I'd love to understand about overtraining with reference to the difference between cardio and resistance training. And... So I think this is kind of a different question and the impact heart rate has on your fat loss specifically one how do you define cardio is it just getting your heart rate up um, as I can often do that in Shona's wads and my heart rate is high as if I am running so how do you define when it is and isn't cardio let's do that one first does anyone want to jump in nope <laughs> okay I'll, I'll start on this then basically the way i see it is that exercise is a spectrum and on the one side you've got resistance training which has quite different adaptations to cardio which would be on the other side now the adaptations to cardio again are different than resistance training you're going to have things that are more predisposed to aerobic metabolism whereas on the other side probably anaerobic metabolism but the point i want to make is that this is a spectrum so nothing is fully cardio and nothing is fully resistance training like you will get cardiovascular benefits from resistance training you will get strength benefits from running for example it's just then like it's on a spectrum so there isn't a defined difference it's just a more swaying towards one side of the spectrum compared to the other side of the spectrum um the second part of this question two you reference doing too much cardio isn't optimal quite a lot but why is it just not optimal for hypertrophy or for fat loss as well um is it to do with your heart rate being raised and it eating into muscle mass for energy stores rather than fat and therefore is it possible to do too much cardio so again it's really nothing to do with your heart rate like i would think of heart rate as just sort of like a byproduct that is going to take care of itself unless you're really looking at heart rate zones and endurance training and again it would more be like a marker of how hard you're working as opposed to something you would necessarily worry about 
um what so what was the question is, does optimal basically again it comes back to the spectrum so if you th- these adaptations at either end of the spectrum i.e your adaptations to endurance training versus resistance training are to some extent opposing so for example even if we just look at muscle tissue if you wanted to be very good at resistance training you would have more type 2 muscle fibers if you wanted to be very good at uh, endurance training you would have more type 1 muscle fibers or or muscle fibers that take on the characteristics of type 2 or type 1 type 2 is a more glycolytic fiber so it's better at um, anaerobic glycolysis anaerobic production of energy which means the production of energy without oxygen so things that we need for very immediate energy and power output like resistance training and type 1 fibers have a more aerobic uh, metabolism predisposition or optimization so they've got a lot more mitochondria which is the site at which you would uh, break down ATP for energy aerobically sorry break down fat or carbohydrates for energy aerobically so with oxygen and they're better at that so basically the reason that people would say don't do too much cardio if you want to build muscle is because the some of the adaptations are opposing and i'm i'm talking more now on like a molecular level but if you want to just extrapolate this to the obvious of look at a sprinter versus an endurance athlete they have like if you don't see really good marathon runners carrying around a whole load of muscle mass because they have to carry that muscle mass for the whole marathon it's not optimal for them to be carrying that much so that's kind of i think that should answer that question now point three which is related to the above what impact does your heart rate have on fat loss versus building muscle i understand that there are different heart rate zones and that the quote-unquote fat loss zone is quite low how does this all work sorry for all the questions just very interested in this right now as i'm working out a lot with a mix of resistance training and hit so i want to ensure i'm getting the right balance i love these questions i think that these show like so much like understanding that you're thinking about all this stuff so i love that don't worry about this um don't also worry about heart rate generally the fat loss zone has kind of been debunked so basically at low levels of uh, intensity you'll burn more fat for fuel as opposed to carbohydrate for fuel that is solely down to um, oxygen availability at your muscle so when you exercise at higher intensities oxygen can't get there as quickly so that you're doing quite a lot of anaerobic metabolism and you can't break down fat without oxygen so you're using more carbohydrate for that now at a much lower exercise intensity you will use more fat for fuel however at the like you will use the most fat for fuel as so you're always using like a, a little bit of fat and a little bit of carbs sometimes a little bit of protein as well and at the lowest or sorry at the highest percentage of fat you're using for fuel is at rest so the lower intensity exercise you can do the higher percentage of fat you will be using as fuel at that moment in time now you see the obvious problem here that you would then be burning less calories like if you want to worry about the percentage of fat you're using for fuel at any given moment do really low intensity exercise and don't move too fast but if you're worried about 
or if you want to expend quite a lot of calories or improve your exercise performance then you should worry less about the fat burning zone and you should worry more about like if you were doing exercise for optimal fat loss the idea would be to burn as many calories as possible in a given amount of time now that won't necessarily be running as fast as possible because that's going to limit for how long you can run so it's likely it ends up being about medium pace so you can keep going for a prolonged period of time but so your metabolic rate is higher and you're burning calories during that time um so it's usually ends up being about a moderate intensity as opposed to doing something like hit on one end of the extreme or like walking on the other end of the extreme but walking can be really good because you can do it for ages and you can you know entertain yourself with other things you can have a podcast in and um so hopefully i think that answers it but if you have any other questions on that do let me know but broadly i wouldn't be worrying about heart rate and you you kind of asked a couple of times like how does heart rate impact fat loss and it doesn't massively apart from i mean you could you kind of can claim it does because a lot of the more accurate um watches and things that calculate how many calories you're burning at any given time use heart rate to do that and the reason they do that is because they're measuring your exercise intensity via your heart rate so you could claim that like a higher heart rate would be better for fat loss purely because you're exercising at a higher intensity and burning more calories well i think i've said enough i think you've smashed that one yep i've got a question found one is that okay mm. is that okay andy yeah um, okay so when you no lose shut body- up <laughs> uh, when you lose body fat why does your body take it from your fat stores and not try to break down your muscle or does it do a bit of both is it a situation where it does take from your muscle before your fat stores i hope this makes sense i'm not sure i've worded it exactly right also, does it take from your visceral fat stores first or your outside fat? Uh, sorry, I didn't know the, know the technical Subcutaneous. Uh, subcutaneous, sorry, I was just reading literally what they'd written. Um, subcutaneous fat, or can this be genetic? Hope that all makes sense. Love the question. Do you, want to, do you want to start on it or do you want me to go? No, you please go. Okay. Um, <laughs> so with the question compared, like visceral fat compared to subcutaneous fat, what's quite interesting is you would want to lose visceral fat first and a lot of the time that does happen because basically when your fat stores become full subcutaneously which just means like below your skin and and often more peripherally so not around your middle that's when you start to accumulate more and more fat around your middle because you've got these fat these full fat stores like on a more peripheral level unfortunately a large part of that is genetic like how much visceral fat you store um and so for example south asians store a lot more fat viscerally so at the same bmi they have a much higher risk of things like cardiovascular disease so there is a genetic component there and you cannot choose where you store body fat unfortunately but the good thing about um exercise is that it does seem to predominantly uh, utilize visceral fat especially when you're starting a new exercise program so that's quite that, I mean that's great actually because it improves your health quite drastically uh, what was the other so the other part of the question was About... how does your body know whether to use 
body fat, fat as opposed to protein yeah so i think firstly i think it prefers to use fat especially if you have very full fat cells that it wants to get rid of effectively and it wants to keep um, your muscle especially if you're using it so your body will keep things that's being used remember that fat is a store of energy so that's what the body wants to use it for is for energy and your muscle tissue is in a constant state of flux so it's always in a state of muscle protein synthesis or muscle protein breakdown and that happens throughout the day so it will be like i don't know you have a meal and synthesis rates go up and then between that meal when you're fasting breakdown rates are higher so you're you're in a, like a net energy deficit sorry net protein deficit but at the end of the day hopefully you're either in protein balance or you're in a positive protein balance so that's happening throughout the day and as long as you're reminding the body that it needs that protein you're stimulating muscle protein synthesis via getting in enough protein and via resistance training then you your body will want to maintain that even though you're in a negative energy balance so it will preferentially choose fat for fuel now when this uh when you're more likely to lose lean body mass is when either you're not resistance training not getting in enough protein but also potentially when you become very lean because then the body's like oh we don't have a lot of energy stores here actually we maybe want to hold on to some of these so it's less likely to want to use body fat um so that would be at the very like lean extreme when actually we probably want wouldn't want you to lose any more body fat anyway just for general health reasons cool right uh hip thrusts something i've been adding in on my extra workouts and i have been working on for a few months i feel my technique is good as i've been really concentrating on it but i tend to only feel it in my glutes that my glutes my glutes on reps 15 to 20 i know it's light but the heavier i go so eight to ten reps i feel that i don't feel it in my glutes anymore more hammies and quads what is more beneficial i'll jump in on that one um so hip thrust is generally a, an exercise aimed at your glutes and your hamstrings so um so a posterior chain work um i popped up a video in the group i think it was last week about the demo of the hip thrusts so generally what happens is is that people either one use too much ego and fat try to work far too heavy um and you're seeing folk try to do like one two rep hip thrust so that's great if you're wanting to shift a lot of weight but it's useless if you're trying to build your glutes and your hamstrings so the 15 to 20 rep range is actually probably where you'd want to train especially if you're keeping it in your glutes and your hamstrings if you're feeling it in your quads what generally happens is you'll either be um you'll either be going too heavy and your quads are having to engage themselves to try and force the weight to go where it needs to go or you're overextending at the top of the movement so when you get to the bridge position at the top you'll push your hips through so that your hips are above the level of the square so your knees your hips and your chest your shoulders should be in a line or your hips should just be slightly below that line if you push further through your quads will engage so not your too quads much engage, thrusting no no we don't want to break just, just the optimal amount just of enough. thrust <laughs> that's it but it's a similar the, the it's a sort of similar thing to 
people feeling their lower back in a squat or a deadlift. Generally, people overextend and push their back through. And once you've done that, you can't disengage it. As soon as you start to get your lower back involved in a squat or a deadlift, your lower back will very rarely loosen itself off. So every set after that, your back knows that it needs to engage, that it fires up. Um, similarly to your quads, if you're going too heavy, your quads will automatically go, well, we need, to, we need to engage to help this movement happen. So they'll start doing it. So sticking to the heavier, the heavier rep range, or the sorry, the, the the more reps is probably going to be a better work for you. Excellent. Yeah, I think we've had quite a few questions about hip thrust because like there is like an optimal weight, isn't there? Like more so for than any other exercise. Like you can either go far too heavy or really not heavy enough. And if you've got like one piece of equipment, it's really difficult. Um so yeah I agree and then like people sort of get hung up about lateral raises and things as well they're like oh my god I've not increased my weight in lateral raises and I'm like I've been doing the same weight for lateral raises for like years and years and years like there's some exercises where you're probably not going to increase in weight and also it doesn't really matter because they're all they're they're assistance exercises and I probably wouldn't class a hip thrust in this but there are exercises where it's like we don't we don't really need you to be increasing weight there we just need you to be thinking about using that muscle do you know um a while ago i did a youtube video where i was trying to recreate the workout that um the actress that played captain marvel did i can't remember her name but that's her yep and she um her personal trainer had her doing one rep max hip thrusts and she was like hip thrusting 200 kilos or something and I was like what's the point what's that why is she doing one rep max hip thrust but I think it was to more show that this girl was like really strong and she was ready to play Captain Marvel but yeah um, I thought that was a bit pointless yeah I think like when it comes to building muscle as well like we often get asked like what's the best rep range for hypertrophy or like why am I doing like should I be doing five reps or should I be doing 20 reps and the answer is like the 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 program or the workouts are programmed that way for a certain reason. There are exercises that are better done at higher reps and better done at lower reps. And the answer to the, what is optimal for hypertrophy is that you want to create the most volume, the most recoverable, very important, the most recoverable volume you can. Now, if you're doing one rep maxes all the time, it's very hard to create decent volume doing that because you if it's a true one rep max you'll be so fatigued whereas if you're if you're like lifting a like moderate weight for 12 reps it's much easier to create higher volume without having that same level of fatigue and not to mention injury risk so i think a lot of people get mixed up though as well when they certainly when they see Again, it's like going back to that comparison with a professional athlete. So they're seeing people doing, say, for instance, for as a bloke, seeing somebody doing like incline bench press with 140 kilos for like 15 reps. Like they're they're seeing 140 kilos, so they're like trying to emulate that by getting one rep, but they're not realizing that the guy is doing 15 reps at 140 kilos, so he's ultra strong. That's why he's building How muscle. How sexist it's of you. Kilos. I'm always lifting well, 140 kilograms. Same. Machines. But you, you know what I mean? <laughs> Especially it's the, it's the ego that starts to put, pop in there. And somebody's like, well, I just need to lift 140 kilos. Well, no, you need to look at the, you need to look at it from the whole of it. How many reps is it actually getting in? And what's the volume across the course of the session? So and across doing, the course of the week. 
Yeah, doing three rep, doing two reps at your maximal, your maximal glute, your hip thrust. What, what's the point if you're getting 120 kilos? So there's 240 kilos that you've that your volume for that, or drop it back to 60, do 12 reps. You're, you're ready. You're mm. 720 kilo volume. So nice you're, math. you're laughing. <laughs> yeah, great math. Only time Andy, great math. Only time do mass when it comes to like weights plates i'm like boom, boom. anything else see tax i'm sitting going give me my calculator because this is pish <laughs> um, it's um also kind of guys we're gonna it. have to wrap up there because we've been on for an hour <gasps> <gasps> how time flies right i hope everyone has enjoyed that we've still got a couple more questions to get through and i am only four questions into co- committed sorry four check-ins into committed so there's going to be a fair few more questions so we'll have to come back and answer those but hopefully that has been enjoyable if you're listening to this on the podcast and you're like oh they just sound great i really want to join commit to six then head to www.esgfitness.co.uk and put your name on the waiting list list on the waiting last list <clears throat> for the next intake Woohoo! Woohoo! bye